today on Government Matters, the newest federal IT report card and the agencies making the grade. Carol Harris from the Government Accountability Office offers a look at what's ahead for the scorecard. The State Department turning to the cloud to help with its coronavirus response. Principal Deputy CIO Mike Mestrovich tells you the role of cloud smart strategies. And the Defense Department goes back to the drawing board on the Navy shipbuilding plan. Our panel of experts discusses how to build up the fleet. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out this morning. I'm your host, Marjorie Sunser. The latest Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act scorecard gave every agency a passing grade for the first time, but fewer agencies received top marks this time around. The General Services Administration was the only agency with an A+, and the U.S. Agency for International Development kept its A rating. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks for being here, Carol. What were your biggest takeaways from this new scorecard? Thanks, Marjorie, for having me on. The greatest takeaways was the tremendous amount of progress that the agencies have made over the past five and a half years since the um, enactment of FITARA. Um, so some of the, the major uh, accomplishments by the agencies was um, IT projects utilizing incremental development, which had increased from 58% to 76% um, from scorecard one to this 10th uh, scorecard. Additionally, um, the level of transparency on the dashboard had also increased um, with 61% of major projects being reported as red or yellow as compared to 24% from the first scorecard, as well as some dramatic improvements in how agencies manage their software licensing, um, going from two ways to 23. So there are some great, um, a great amount of accomplishments by the agencies. What are you looking to in, in the next scorecard? Um, what are the areas you think uh, agencies are going to be focusing? Well, I think that there's still some improvements that need to be made. Um, two key takeaways here. Uh, the first of which is one third of the agency CIOs still aren't reporting to the agency head. Now, this is really critical because this gives CIOs a real seat at that management table, and it will also help um, to attract more qualified individuals to these positions over time. Um, the second key thing is about half of the agencies have not established working capital funds for use in transitioning from their legacy IT systems. And this is really critical because roughly 80% of the over $90 billion that are spent annually on federal IT is on operations and maintenance, including on agency legacy systems, or I'm sorry, aging le legacy systems. So having these working capital funds is, is really important and, and we really wanna push agencies in that direction. What are the challenges there what, to, to getting those things done? As you noted, we're, we're several years into this at this point. Well, I think it takes a lot of, um, a lot of will and by the agencies to establish these working capital funds. Um, it takes a lot of cooperation and support by their senior executives within the C-suite to establish these funds. Um, in addition to that, I think also the IT workforce is a major challenge that agencies, CIOs are, are grappling with right now. And so those are the two um, hurdles that they'll have to get through, but they are, they are ones that, that can be um, overcome in order to address these two areas of reporting to the agency head, as well as establishing these working capital funds. Well, what about the metrics on the scorecard? Do you think that um, they're working or they need to be adapted and evolved as we go forward? 
the, the metrics are working for sure, um, especially when you look at the progress that have been made, like software licensing, for example, where you go from two A's to 23 A's. Um, I think that over time, things like software licensing could probably be um, could probably be removed from the scorecard because of the great progress that the agencies have made uh, to make room for other areas, some areas such as cloud adoption or or perhaps IT infrastructure as a whole or IT workforce. Those are areas that that could potentially um, evolve and, and be added onto the scorecard potentially. Do you think as a policy, excuse me, it makes sense to? Um, kind of move metrics out as they as they are achieved? And are there other ones like software licensing you think are getting to that point? Yes, I, I think that certainly like software licensing, we're, we're probably getting to that point where it doesn't make sense to continue to keep it on the scorecard uh, to make room for, for areas of, of greater improvement. Um, in this particular scorecard 10.0, uh, the, the Committee on Oversight and Reform had have now previewed an area called um, EIS, the Enterprise Infrastructure Services. Um, it's a major federal telecommunications contract that the federal agencies are currently transitioning to off of the, the current legacy telecom contract. And that's a, a really important one that I believe that the committee included because right now agencies are behind. And this is a really important opportunity because with the previous transition onto networks, um, agencies were behind and as a result, uh, they left about $330 million on the table in missed savings um, from, from, from not transitioning on time. And, and Carol, what did you hear from Congress this week? Are they happy with this approach? Are they um, open to evolving the, the scorecard metrics over time? I do believe that the, the committee is, is open to evolving the metrics. I, Mr. Connell even mentioned at the hearing that he'd like to transform the scorecard into a digital um, hygiene um, scorecard so it's something broader than just what's included in Fatara uh, to include cyber as, as they already have but perhaps you know evolve it to, to more metrics so that we have a more comprehensive look at how these agencies are doing IT wise. Thank you so much for being here Carol. Sure thank you. Up next CloudStorm Smart Strategies and the coronavirus response straight ahead on Government Matters the State Department's lessons learned in the shift to telework. You're watching ABC7. Department has allowed employees to take up to 10 paid hours off a week during the coronavirus to look after family members or take care of their own health. Many State Department employees have also transitioned to telework, a move made easier by the cloud smart strategy at the agency. Mike Mestrovich is Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the State Department. Thanks for being here, Mike. How has the State Department shifted to telework during this period? So the State Department uh, historically had been a, a very much office-centric uh, environment. We had, you know, a large number of PCs, and you know, for 231 years of the State Department, uh, people came into the office and, and had meetings, and that's just kind of how business was conducted. So we really hadn't, uh, we didn't have a large footprint uh, of, of telecommuting individuals. Uh, we did in certain circumstances, but it wasn't the predominant way that people kind of showed up to work. 
We had established a, a mobile device program many years previously, and we had also moved to Office 365. And so we had the foundation to enable people to work remotely. Uh, we just needed to implement some more of the technical needs. So uh, two things that we did. Number one, early in, uh, or late in 2019, we ended up enrolling the entire department into multi-factor authentication. Uh, and that really gave us a leg up when the pandemic hit because when the pandemic hit, we opened up remote access to our Office 365 environment through a web browser. And so now anybody at their home computer um, could actually log in, get access to their email, files, calendaring, so on and so forth. Uh, and through the use of multi-factor authentication, we were able to authenticate those individuals as being State Department employees. So so opening that up, uh, opening up our, our, our cloud architecture from remote access from a web browser really made a huge difference. It was the ability to transition uh, over 100,000 people into remote workers uh, virtually overnight and then use the capabilities of the cloud infrastructure to scale up and scale out uh, as demand required it so we didn't have to make large investments uh, on back-end infrastructure for us. So that was probably one of the biggest saving graces for us um, moving into this enhanced telework environment. The challenge, of course, is that um, it almost changed overnight, right? You had people uh, coming to the office and then, and then they weren't. Um, how seamless was that transition for you? Um, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. And I, I think when the pandemic hit and the majority of people were working remotely, uh, it was relatively seamless because everybody seemed to be in the, in the same boat. Um, uh, now, interestingly enough, as we've seen more and more of the workforce return to the office, now we have a bit of a dichotomy. You have uh, the infrastructure that was in place in the office really trying to keep pace with the infrastructure people had at, at their homes. Uh, so you have things like, does every computer have a video camera? and microphone installed on it and if, if in the office place we hadn't had those so we had to go back and make sure that those were enabled um, there wasn't uh, there wasn't definitive Wi-Fi coverage across all of our building spaces and so people if they wanted to use their personal mobile devices uh, to participate in um, teams calls or WebEx sessions um, you know they struggled with that if they didn't have adequate cell phone coverage and so we had to expand the, the Wi-Fi coverage um, that we had uh, available places so um, as we saw people come back to the office, I think we saw more of a disparity and, and, and we had to play a little bit of catch up with that. And I, I think we've, we've been in a pretty good position, so, so we're making good strides. But um, I think that's been one of, the, one of the interesting challenges that we've seen as people have started to return into the office. What's been the role of the um, cloud smart strategy here? Yeah, so, so the Cloud Smart strategy has, has really helped us, you know, in the sense that we took it upon ourselves to move to the cloud, those applications, services, and data uh, that were really primed for, for cloud environments. So as an example, right, everybody has an HR system, and uh, I'm sure every year everybody does, you know, performance appraisals. Um, but there's no need to have that server infrastructure and compute infrastructure running 24-7 when it's only used maybe one week or two weeks out of the year. Those, those types of things, those, those types of systems that scale up and scale out uh, at metered times, at metered times, th those are really the candidates for, for, for easy cloud migration and cloud adoption. And, and we took that approach. We, we determined, you know, what were the applications and data and services that we needed to keep on-prem? Um, and were there components of those systems that were necessarily uh, public-facing or user-facing that we could move into the cloud so that we could scale out as demand hit? 
Um, as I mentioned, you know, moving to Office 365 mean, meant that you know the, the cloud service provider uh, was able to scale out as demand uh, increased to accommodate the increased number of users that that, that uh, hit Office 365. We're a global workforce, so you know we we operate in 193 countries, so there's there's no real opportunity for us to have downtime. And so again, as cloud service providers can upgrade infrastructure and capacity without taking services down, that certainly also helps. Uh, we did, you know, I still have to do a lot of visa processing and passport processing, um, even during the pandemic. Um, so having the ability to scale up and scale out in the, for those services um, was also a great benefit to us. And Mike, with just about 45 seconds to go, uh, how, you know, do the lessons that you've learned here, the things you've seen, how, how will that inform future IT investments, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we, I, I don't think, counted on is everybody's home internet service differs. Uh, and, and no matter what you do on the back-end infrastructure or the cloud infrastructure, you really can account for the disparity in service either in people's localities or in different geographies across the globe. And so, in some instances, you have to be able to scale down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, that, that's one thing that we learned. And then the second thing that we learned is no matter how well you implement technology, there's a series of organizational workflows on the back-end uh, that you also need to take into account and, and those workflows may not be adapted to the individual technologies and so some of those processes need to be refined in order to match the new technology that you're rolling out. Thank you so much Mike. Thanks for having me. Up next the Navy's shipbuilding plan revised. Straight ahead on Government Matters how the Pentagon will draft a plan to get the Navy to 355 ships. You're watching ABC7. is reworking the Navy's 30-year shipbuilding plan. The Acting Chief of Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation at the Pentagon, John Whitley, says the plan didn't offer a, quote, credible pathway to 355 ships. Michael O'Hanlon, a senior fellow and director of research for foreign policy at the Brookings Institution, Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, U.S. Navy retired, is National Vice President of Military Affairs at the Navy League, and Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you all for joining me. Mackenzie, let's start with you. Why is this plan important and what has been the, the dispute over it? Well, the plan is important because everybody agrees that we need a larger Navy. They just don't agree how to get there. Congress codified the Navy's number of 355 ships goal into law in 2018. And the Navy's number was based on a number from 2016. And the Trump administration has made this a priority and OMB has asked the Navy to find a credible path to 355 ships. The Secretary of Defense has disagreed with that path being credible and has talked about how it needs to be realistic, grounded in funding assumptions that matter shipyard constraints that are real and uh, the mix of the force going forward. So that's why Congress is really worried about why they haven't been getting the answers that they want and that they deserve. But now the secretary is still working out those details with the service. And, and Michael, it seems like part of the issue is that the Navy has other priorities it needs to pay for. Is that right? You know, I think the 305 ship, 355 ship concept is actually an example of fighting the last war. Or in this case, as Mackenzie points out, it's based on a 2016 analysis, not even a fighting the last war, but a fighting the last operational tempo crisis. That 355 ship number came out of what the combatant commanders were asking 
to sustain their normal peacetime activities and forward presence. To me, that is not a good way to build a future Navy of 2030 or 2040 when you're focused on great power competition, a concept we hadn't even fully rallied around in 2016. So I'm much more interested in innovative concepts, much more interested in survivable platforms, much more interested in uh, smaller ships perhaps that maybe wind up being more numerous, but facing after a 355 ship goal, especially of the old types of ships based on old requirements, it should be challenged. And Secretary Esper is exactly right to reject this. If anything, he was too delicate in how he did so in my judgment. And, and Sinclair, I know that you're worried about um, the delays we're seeing to this plan. What does that mean for, for the Navy, for industry? Well, uh, thank you uh, for the question. And let me start off by saying I agree with both of the previous uh, speakers. Uh, they are very accurate in, in their assessment. Uh, uh, but the delay, the problem with delay is time is money. And any time that you have these delays, well, industry who's making these things uh, has to worry about uh, their profitability, their revenue, their sustainment, uh, especially in the current economic crisis, holding on to workers, okay, getting the right workers uh, for the future in order to build the right systems that are needed by all the military services, especially the Navy, which is very platform centric. Right. Right. And, and Mackenzie, some of the argument seems to be over what to count, right? We're, we're looking at different kinds of systems maybe than we would have in the past. Um, how do you think that the count should go? Should drones be included? So this has been an ongoing debate with Congress, right? So we essentially have the ship counting system of the Reagan era with a brief pause under President Obama and a previous Secretary of the Navy where he tried to change the ship counting methodology beyond battle force ready ships. And Congress immediately rejected it, saying they were artificially inflating the number of uh, the fleet, the number of ships. And so the Navy's now a little gun shy about that, even though Secretary of Defense Esper has indicated that is where he wants to go. And I think that's one of the reasons there's a delay in the plan and the force structure assessment is that they probably are going to ask Congress to make this change. And the Hill has indicated they're not interested in having that conversation. I think another reason uh, there's a delay is because of the controversial potential decisions behind it, right? To include unmanned, uh, Secretary Esper talks about lightly manned that eventually become unmanned, which should be counted. That sounds like to Congress immediately unmanned already. And uh, the potential for cuts to the current force carriers and major surface combatants. And so really this could get wrapped up like everything in presidential year politics and see a delay past the fall. Right. Michael, let's talk a little bit more, if you would, about um, the reaction of Congress. Obviously, they, they want to see this plan, but they have some concerns about what it's going to look like. Is there also some um, debate within Congress about um, what this should look like? Absolutely, because we're trying to imagine the future, and this is always hard. And we're talking about technology that could be around 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. By the way, one last point, General Berger of the Marine Corps has said that he wants a future Marine Corps amphibious concept it depends less on big ships, more on smaller ships. He's basically declared large-scale amphibious assault obsolete. This is radical thinking from a Marine Corps Commandant, and it has followed the 355 ship plan. It has not preceded it. In other words, it still hasn't been fully incorporated in the way we're thinking about the future of the Navy. If the Navy is gonna be delivering Marines through smaller ships in different ways, that's gotta be part of the plan. So I think the 355 ship construct of yesteryear has to be basically blown up. Now, you can still have the goal of 
trying to increase naval power. You need temporary goals, temporary objectives by which to shape your five-year shipbuilding plan. That's true. But the notion that the previous 355-ship plan is somehow uh, going to be accepted in Congress when Congress is also hearing the Commandant of the Marine Corps radically rethink how we do amphibious assault, which is one part of the Navy force structure, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense. So we need a rethink. And Sinclair, uh, with just about 30 seconds, what has been the reaction of industry? How is industry adapting as they try to um, predict a little bit what's going to happen here? I would say that most of my in industry partners are a little frustrated uh, because they need to make investments in their infrastructure, in their planning, in their personnel in order to meet the customer need. And when you don't know what the customer needs or you don't know what the customer is going to be able to pay for, it's very hard. One more quick point. Uh, I would say that uh, what Mike Highland said was absolutely right, but I would also say that the Commandant and the CNO and their staffs are locked together better than I've ever seen in trying to at least explain from a combined naval perspective what is uh, needed, and they're tying in the Coast Guard well for a maritime perspective. Thank you all for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.